This is the Planning Podcast from Number 5 Chambers and I'm Richard Kimbling. Today the Planning Podcast turns to an issue uh, which is not new to us because in the last episode we were looking at a climate change case. This is another climate change case. It's rather like the last one in this one important respect. The judges didn't agree with each other. In the last case, in our last episode, there was dissent in the Court of Appeal. In this case, we have an unusual feature of having two judges sitting in the High Court, Lord Justice Stuart Smith and Mrs Justice Thornton. In the end, they didn't agree as to the particular outcome. And the thing they disagreed about in this case was that the assessment which was undertaken by the government of the climate change impacts of this project was not rational, so said Mrs Justice Thornton. Lord Justice Stuart Smith uh, reached a different conclusion. He felt that the overall approach taken fell within the parameters of the margin of discretion which is afforded to decision makers. This planning podcast is unusual because we're only going to look at half of the case. We're only going to look at what Mrs Justice Thornton decided. We're not going to spend any time looking at Lord Justice Stuart Smith's judgment. The reason we're going to do that is we're going to see why it is a judge might find that the nitty-gritty of the assessment undertaken to look at the climate change effects of a project might be unreasonable. So unreasonable that the court will quash it. That, we think, is of some interest to those who are drafting environmental statements and thinking about how to take account of climate change effects. The case itself is not a planning project. It is not even in the UK. The project is in Mozambique. But the decision was made in the UK because the UK was providing backing, financial guarantees to the project to ensure that it would go ahead. That is really all that you need to know about this project. That, and it is a project of really some very, very significant scale for the production and export of LNG, liquid natural gas. So it's a hydrocarbon fossil fuel project giving rise to very substantial carbon impacts. What do you have to calculate? How do you relate it to the Paris Agreement and the parameters which the Paris Agreement puts in particular into Article 2 of the Paris Agreement? How does all of that play out in a rational assessment? And that is what Mrs Justice Thornton focused on. To help us with that, we have Will Rundle, Head of Legal at Friends of the Earth, who ran the case for the claimant and no doubt will be running the case again in the Court of Appeal in due course, because this is a case where inevitably when judges disagree it goes off to the next court. It's gone off to the Court of Appeal and we'll learn more about it then. So let's hear what the person running the case has to say about it. Hello Will, how are you this morning? Hi Richard, I'm, I'm great, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a real pleasure and it's a real pleasure just to have you on because you uh, ran this case and it's a case which has produced lots of interesting material and it's pretty clear that it's going to produce some more given that the judges didn't agree with each other on an important aspect. So what I thought, Will, is that we, we would 
not make this into a podcast where we compare and contrast what the two judges said. I thought we'd have a look at what Mrs Justice Thornton had to say and just explore that and see what she was saying. And then I rather suspect in due course, there'll be some more said about that, perhaps in another court, but that's for later. That means I'll get a second podcast out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Excellent. So I thought it would be worth just having a quick look at the Paris Agreement, because there's a real focus, isn't there, here on Article 2, which is all about climate change and, and finance, as far as I can work out. And that's what that's what you were there to talk about. Yeah, so Article 2 is, is, is a core feature of the Paris Agreement. It kind of segments into three main goals, which is the temperature goal, which is the one most people have heard of, about you know, limiting temperature rise to two, well below two degrees and, and efforts to pursue 1.5. And then there's what you might call an adaptation goal, which is about assisting developing countries to reach the temperature goal in the best possible way. Uh, and a finance goal as well, which is also in service to reaching the temperature goal through low greenhouse gas emissions pathway. And those three come as a sort of package, if you like. The whole point is to reach the temperature goal and to, to help everyone get there in the best possible way. Having already got rich off fossil fuels, the developed world needs to help those that haven't to develop away from fossil fuels, but also be able to develop their own economies and, and avoid you know making the climate situation worse. Exactly. This was very much the focus of, of the judge's uh, dissenting judgment. Uh, she was going from those objectives and the science which is associated with them to the assessment that was undertaken in making the decision to support and back the scheme in Mozambique. And to a degree, the judge started off by having a look at some of the law that we're familiar with in England and Wales on EIA and looking at, at the approach that the court takes to how it's going to review EIA and whether or not that's the sort of area in which it's going to, going to step into. And she's obviously drawing upon her previous experience at the bar. So it's quite interesting to see that, that she's drawn that parallel, isn't it? So uh, because the, the government wasn't doing an EIA, as as many planning professionals would understand it. They were doing something else, but she was drawing upon on those cases, wasn't she? First reflection really is that her her judgment is really quite compelling and, and coherent and, and interesting and precise. And I think it really does show the value of having somebody in the judiciary like her, uh, as there are others too, that has that experience to, that understands environmental law and, 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 and planning law in, in particular really, really well. But as you say, that, that there are parallels, but they were doing different things here. You know, we, we had an assessment of the climate risks uh, against the Paris Agreement, which is slight, you know, in, in the slightly open textured terms rather than the EIA regime. But the EIA regime, I think, is a useful thing to point to because one of the concerns of the judges were, was that this is a multifactorial, difficult, predictive, complex area where you have to weigh up different factors and, and in some ways make a political judgment as much as a, a policy judgment at the end. And, but here we have this very well-established regime, and with the SEA as well, that, that, that shows that it can be done and it's perfectly sensible to do it in this way. 
yeah, so so it's a useful useful reference point, I think. It seems like we end up in terms of how we test what they did as being right or wrong in a similar place in, in legal terms about whether it was rational uh, in public law terms or reasonable in public law terms. But it's not identical. It's not not the same thing. And that's one of the reasons why she says that a great margin of appreciation should be afforded to the decision taker here. That's That's a strong feature throughout both judgments, I think. Yeah, so the, the judges agreed on very many contextual features that, in terms of what the relevant law is, and Mrs. Justice Thornton was very happy to agree that the decision maker should be given a wide margin of appreciation, and that uh, it was only if the decision made was one which was unreasonable that public law test would be would be passed and the threshold crossed, and that's what she found. She said, "Look, this is unreasonable." So what what was wrong with with the climate assessment that the UKEF did what how did how did they get it that badly wrong <laughs> Well, it's, it's almost where do we start, from my perspective, at least. Um, well, that's a bit flippant. I mean, the short answer is that they didn't calculate total emissions from the project. They got certain concepts mixed up and wrong, and they came to inconsistent conclusions, is, is, is the sort of short, in a nutshell, answer. And so they didn't have a clear basis or even strong evidence or any evidence in some respects to, to say this is Paris compatible. And the first of that is probably paramount. You know, not calculating total emissions is a, is a major gap, you know, where you've got a system, a global system and a national system which understands climate change emissions need to be measured or estimated, that they then need to be compared and evaluated against budgets and baselines and remaining budgets to hit a pathway towards a target. That's a very well-established and wide um, system internationally and nationally. And and the first step is to understand the emissions that you're going to create or that you'll contribute to through your actions. And and they didn't do that. And, And our case has always been that you can't have a meaningful in any sense assessment if you don't do that, especially when you're trying to compare what you're doing and its impact against the Paris Agreement, which is a global a view and a global effort towards a temperature goal. So in essence, they were sticking their finger up in the air and going, this seems like this and we think it's okay. Obviously, that's a bit unkind perhaps to, to the amount of work they did actually put in, but that's a very, very brief summary of where, where they went to. And indeed, their, their own experts were saying to them at the time, and this is in the judgment, you know, not calculating emissions is possible and it's a big gap. And my theory is that there was a big momentum behind trying to get this decision made and, and they were to some extent fitting things to, to that process. And you know, they'd relied on a, a, all of the export credit agencies involved in, in supporting the project had duly appointed with Total, the sponsor, Total Energies, a, 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 an energy consultant who'd produced a quite cursory report that they all relied on. And the advice from them was that they couldn't assess accurately the, uh, the total emissions. And whilst that was questioned to a certain extent, they didn't then take the necessary steps that could have been done to, to calculate that. And that undercut and create a major flaw for the whole process, which was built off that um, failure to, to assess total emissions. And ultimately, um, the way Thornton very clearly sets out is that this scale of the emissions impact was not understood and wasn't referred back to ministers um, who were there to approve the decision or not, which again is, an, is another flaw in the information um, that was shared. And she, she's very plainly, one can see in the judgment, influenced and affected by the scale of the total scheme emissions which 
is, is measurable in percentage terms against the total global carbon budget, depending on how you calculate it, somewhere between 0.14 and 0.2% of the total global carbon budget, and is essentially saying this is this is very significant and the assessment's not there to back it up. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it's rather telling both that she's able to do that on the basis of the information that was presented um, from their from their files or from their case. And, and she's not a climate scientist, as far as I'm aware, although she's you know, a very impressive person. It is clearly wrong that you can't assess these things uh, to say that you can't assess these things. There's well established methodologies for doing so. And indeed, it's essential if you're going to embark on a process of understanding climate impacts globally. Okay, so I think that can properly be said to be uh, not an entirely ringing endorsement of the assessment that was undertaken. But the court was sitting somewhat unusually as a pair of judges. There's a a Lord Justice sitting, Lord Justice Stuart Smith. He came to a rather different conclusion. And I'm picking up from 216 and 218 of his judgment. I'm not going to go into this in too much detail for a whole variety of reasons, but he is looking at this as a holistic assessment, an overall assessment as to whether or not to go ahead with the project with particular factors in mind, such as, well, gas is replacing other fossil fuels, principally oil, and that has climate change benefits because the emissions associated with the LNG uh, are preferable in in total terms to, to those from oil and gas and all of these things have to be weighed in the balance and that's not a matter for the court so that's the other approach really isn't it certainly that's how he's done it you know there is another way of looking at it because that, that is what he has done i mean i i feel he's not really grappled with what they've not done he's just looked at what they did and is there a reason for it type assessment not whether they came to a reasonable view in the end, which is ultimately the question I, I would have said, and is the approach that Thornton took. Was it justified there? Well, were their conclusions justified? Were they evidence? Or are there demonstrable flaws? And in a way, he's looked at it and gone, well, light touch, massive margin of appreciation. They've considered lots of things. It's very difficult. We'll let them decide on that one. Yeah, so he has taken a very different approach. And that, that is a really stark factor of the, the two judgments is that they did take such divergent views whilst agreeing, broadly speaking, on, I, I would have thought, all, nearly all of the legal principles in play and, 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 and having considered the same facts. So, so it's very interesting from that point of view. We shall see. I mean, you know, the Court of Appeal will be looking at this and so they will come to their own conclusion too. So, so the next stage will be enlightening. That's a wonderful understatement, if I may say so. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for stepping around that so, so carefully. Look, I find that I'm advising on climate assessments much more now and it it is an emerging uh, discipline in which uh, knotty problems seem to crop up all the time having regard to what we've seen your very interesting intervention in the case of finch which is also about scope three emissions uh, in in a slightly different context and 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 this case it, it does appear to be a sphere of work which is where the sphere is getting bigger and more important is that your take on it yeah i, I mean I, th- I think in terms of climate assessments 
becoming more important. I think that's only going to be true. The facts, in a way, speak for themselves. The, the climate emergency, as we call it, is getting worse and more prevalent. And understanding about it is, about it is increasing and in how government actions or public bodies' actions interrelate with it. And that they need to understand that as an important factor, even if it's a discretional factor. They need public bodies want to want to understand the implications of what they're doing more, and the scientific basis is better understood, and the, and, and the, the methods of un- assessing it are clearer and, and more available. So it's becoming more possible in in areas where where it might not have been thought of before. And indeed, you know, with the development of government policy being what it is, we can expect government bodies and public bodies to have more policy commitments or choices that they take to to assess these things, as, as I think you're alluding to. And so, yes, it's going to become more important. It'd be more important to do it right. And that, that's really key here is, is you've got to be led by the evidence um, because it's an evidence based topic. And that's that's the key one of the one of, if not the key issue in the case here is that can you take a qualitative approach or, or do you need to quantify and actually assess accurately. Part of what Friends of the Earth is about is seeing this as a big governance issue and wanting to develop how it's dealt with, if necessary, through court action, because that's where we end up. You get a bad decision. And so that's your last recourse. And 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 there will be more cases on this. And even if it's just down to I want to avoid litigation risk in, you know, as a government body, that will push um, how they do things. And that's one of one of the benefits, I suppose, as a campaign organisation we might see is taking these cases, although we take the cases because they're important and legitimate on their own grounds. So I think all of that really does point to climate assessments becoming more important and more prevalent, and they will be considered by more and more people. Well, that's, that's wonderful, Will. Thank you very much. We've been looking at the, the variety of considerations which go into the overall decision making and that has been really thrust to the fore uh, since the 24th of February when uh, if we if we hadn't grasped it already the relationship between geopolitics and energy security physical and energy security have been has been really really clear and I think that what your case is about is yes there will always be these significant political considerations. How do we deal with cutting off Russian oil supply? That's a geopolitical question. Replacing it, that's necessarily taken into account. But you need to have all of the other assessment, the climate assessment in particular, need the work to be done accurately and properly so that you've got all of the information available to make the ultimate decision rather than just throw it all into one pot and it's just up to the politicians to come up with whatever answer they prefer. Well, absolutely. If you're going to do a climate assessment, you need to do it properly. That proper understanding will feed into the bigger considerations that you're you're alluding to. The energy crisis that we see at the moment is is partly due to government not taking the lead as fast as they should in the transition away from you know a carbon-based economy. But the question in our case wasn't, is this the right thing to do? in terms of energy policy, the question was, you've decided to assess this project and you're financing against, for climate reasons, against the Paris Agreement. Did you or didn't do it rationally and properly? And did you understand the law properly in terms of what Paris meant, etc.? So it's a, it's a slightly different thing, but you're, you're quite right. You know, understanding climate change properly feeds feeds the dis- bigger decisions that, that come down the line. Mm. Absolutely huge questions and it's brilliant to have been canvassing them with the person who's had conduct of the litigation. We're very privileged, Will, and we're very grateful. So thank you very much indeed. 
And as I say, I hope we can uh, book you uh, next time uh, one of these cases comes up. Absolutely. Uh, absolute pleasure to speak with you, Richard. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Will. That was the planning podcast from Number 5 Chambers. Get in touch if you've got an idea for our next topic. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you and goodbye.